Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough. So many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection, intimacy, and aligned growth. All healthy relationships start within. But when we have unresolved stuff, it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with. Whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love, this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available to cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve. To find out more, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E dot com slash retreats. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And it is my distinct pleasure to be here with my fiance, Jory Rose, and with our two esteemed guests, Linda and Charlie Bloom. Welcome, this everybody. Is another a joint episode of the Journey Forward with Jory Rose and Evolved Caveman Podcast. John and I love doing these joint episodes, and we are really honored to have Charlie and Linda here with us today, who actually was our personal therapists when John and I were healing after our breakup. And we're an integral part in our healing process. And we had the pleasure of going with them on one of their trips. That was our Africa trip. And so got to have some real personal time with them as well, as far as uh, adventures and connecting. And we're also here to talk about their latest book, An End to Arguing. So we're going to delve into all things relationship. And Linda and Charlie, it's so good to see you guys. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. So, John, do you want to start off how we just got connected with Charlie and Linda and sure. a little bit of our personal experience with them? So I was really grateful for um, a powerful referral from Dr. Jim Bramson, who said, you know, if you want to do it right, go see Linda and Charlie. They're in Santa Cruz. You can do a one-day or two-day intensive. I was like, that sounds perfect. They have great experience. They have a lot of wisdom. And we came and saw them for, was it two six-hour days back-to-back? And that was challenging to say the least. Like it was exhausting, it was emotional, and it was really helpful. The mere fact that John was willing to show up for two days in a row of six hours each was the commitment enough that I needed to know he was all in on healing and being willing to go deep. And you guys were an amazing soft place for us to land in the midst of that really challenging repair that we were going through. So can you give us a little bit of background on your journey, how you got to where you are as both a married couple, as well as doing all the couples work that you've been doing? For what, 40 plus years? But who's counting, right? (laughs) 54. Wow. Long time. We go way back to 1968. We were flower children and hippies back in the 60s. We go back to bell bottom pants. And (laughs) we were both college students in Boston. And a mutual fan introduced us at a party. And there was a 
pretty strong click in for me right away. The very first day that I knew him, uh, it took Charlie a little bit longer. <laughs> he was uh, more reserved, <laughs> but uh, I I saw that this was terrific potential here. We if we worked at it, we could make something beautiful out of it, and we moved in together really fast. And we had so much to learn because neither one of us had good models in our family of origin. But a signature strength of both of us is we're good students. And so we have committed ourselves to personal growth and lifelong learning and finding the best books to read, personal growth development books, the best workshop leaders, the best therapists, and the best spiritual teachers. And I've just been a glutton for those. And we were um, very reactive. I'll speak for myself that I had a lot of sore spots where I used to get triggered. I'd get triggered if I felt like he was being too forceful, that he was going to be dominating, you know, and controlling and want to grab grab the authority to lead in the relationship. And I wanted a real equitable relationship. And I also am very sensitive about being ignored. And so if he was doing his introverted thing, I would take that very personally and feel rejected and unloved. And we had so many places where we needed to have refined, genteel, respectful conversations. And it took us a while, but I told you we're good students. So we learned. And so now I'm just delighted to be able to pay it forward because we got such great help. Yeah. Charlie, anything you want to add to the the journey? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if that's indicative of the relationship. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah, it's been a journey. And, um, as you and your viewers and listeners will probably discover, or you've already discovered it, um, in the course of this interview, we're very, very different, <laughs> especially. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, y- yeah, it's it's been a, a, a challenge at, at times. And um one of the things that I, I, I think I take uh, most gratification in is um, how, how we've come through, not only survived uh, the challenges that are not unique to us. I mean, they're common to most relationships, but we definitely had more than our share. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <clears throat> Like Linda suggested, one of the things that we brought into the relationship was uh, an intention to learn from our experiences. Um, and uh, boy, there's a lot of learning that that we went through. And some of the lessons, you know, as I know you guys and most of your viewers know, were not easy. Um, sometimes it seems like the most challenging uh, difficult experiences that we have hold the greatest value. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we learned was that if we can just approach these breakdowns as having the potential for breakthroughs rather than breakups, um, you know, we can we can get through this. 
we can get through this this moment. We can get through this interaction. We can get through this hard time. Um, and what it's going to require is, is the willingness to really look at ourselves rather than reinforce the predisposition that most of us have to hold the other person responsible for our experience, to hold them responsible for making me upset, for hurting my feelings, for making me angry. Um, but also holding myself responsible for having the authority and the power to transform this situation into a new possibility. So self-responsibility has been a key factor in, in our work. And, um, you know, we, we've slipped up on that from time to time, but we always manage to kind of get back on the horse again after we get thrown. And I think that's one of the things that's enabled us to, to make it this far as well as we have. I really appreciate something you both said, which is kind of this growth mindset around relationship skills, this intention to learn, the value on lifelong learning. I can't overstate the importance of that. I, I remember I was doing an interview in San Francisco. And when I finished up, there was a young lady that approached me and said, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah. She said, well, I'm starting to get back into dating after breaking up with my boyfriend. Do you have any advice on what to look for? Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I do. I, I said... I think what I would look for, the most important thing, is a growth mindset around relationship skills. Someone that's willing and able to grow with you yeah. throughout the relationship. Because if you have that, there's almost nothing you can't deal with. Exactly. Yeah. But so many of us are afraid of growth and resistant to it. And you know, we're kind of of that mindset of love me as I am, love me or leave me. And I, and I think your point of you know self responsibility, but also not blaming the other for your experience, is incredibly wise. Yeah, I'd love to jump onto that. I think that piece of the self reflection is often where we see couples getting really stuck. It's always that externalization of blame, defensive listening rather than non defensive listening projections. And John and I actually have just started launching a year-long masterclass series on relationships based on frameworks that we have really come to see as truths in how to get to this point of healing and reconnection and deepening connection, not even after a disagreement or argument or just in need of repair, but just to deepen. And it's that constant interplay of self and other. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, so much relationship work that we have seen who, you know, by therapists and researchers that I aspire to their work. I mean, you know, beautiful work, but the relational work is only a piece of it because you can't do the relational work if you're stuck on not being able to self-reflect, be able to understand what's actually coming up for me here. And Linda, I love what you said, because I used to get stuck in this a lot more easily that I'm much better at regulating now is not over-personalizing John's differences around our needs. And even when it comes to if we're in a moment of disconnection and he really needs space and I really seek to have connection during disconnection to really honor, oh, that's not me being abandoned. That's not him not wanting to be around me. That's not personal to me. It truly is him seeking regulation so that he can come back and reconnect and repair. It took me a long time to understand it wasn't about me. 
And I think so many couples don't have the awareness, especially in that moment of dysregulation, to recognize that, practice those skills. So, uh, so, so much of what we're already starting to say just it gets me excited because we really, I think all four of us have a very deep passion for teaching this to others. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you guys this. Why should we care about relationships? Why are relationships important? Thank you for asking. <laughs> Everybody wants to be happy. And uh-huh. the research is so clear. But, uh, Linda, I can be happy by myself. Yes, you yeah. can be happy by yourself for a while, but you would need to relate eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who are very uh, independent and self-reliant and they they can get along just beautifully in the world and be very happy. But there comes a point where you want to relate to another person and not in just a superficial way, in a meaningful way, a substantive way. People want to learn from each other. People want to enjoy each other. People want to feel, you know, uh, delight and pleasure in their body. They want to rejoice And the research is so clear. All these people who are studying happiness, you know, over 90 years, these positive psychology people, and they all say the same thing. All of the people that I respect, you get the biggest bang for your buck in your closest relationships and more is better and deeper is better. So when we get expert in really being terrific, terrific in our relating I told my grandson when we had dinner there on Sunday night, after I die, I want to be known for my epic hugs. (laughs) I want people to remember me that I was there. I was juicy. I was present. I was generous of spirit. And I was, you know, loving them up and receiving love back. And so when we dedicate ourselves to what we sometimes speak of when we teach relationship is spiritual practice. It's not sitting on the cushion all alone doing mindfulness practice, as powerful as that is. We need to take our mindfulness practice into the interactive realm with those who are closest to us or the ones who are going to push our buttons and trigger us. We call that the AFGO, you know, another friggin' growth opportunity. Oh, you can say the word. (laughs) Another fucking growth opportunity. There you go. Thank you. We're triggered. We're learning our deepest life lessons. That's why these people are in our life so that we can look and see what is it so sore there? What is it bringing up in me? And I I love it when Terrence Real says, if it's hysterical, it's historical, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's an opportunity to heal some of these wounds that go back very far. Yeah, and I love the reference to positive psych. I mean, George Vilant, the Harvard study, Harvard Ben study, you know, he was like, happiness comes down to connection and relationships. Chris Peterson, other people matter. And it's funny because I think a lot of us that were highly intellectual and highly introverted were of the opinion of, I'm fine alone. <laughs> and I remember for me, it was like, oh shit, now I got to go out and be social. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and when you're, even if you're an introvert, when you're with the right person, being alone together is still very fulfilling. And I remember mm-hmm. for you, John, that was something, a turning point for your own awareness in our relationship was it didn't feel like it, a drain to be together. It actually filled you up, even if mm-hmm. you were doing your own thing. And so that was a big awareness for you of like, wait, oh, 
I can be connected and still autonomous or independent in my activity, but be in a shared space that was connected. Well, I think there's that the other end of the spectrum where you can be in a relationship and still be lonely in the relationship, which I think is all like its own special form of hell. Oh, it's it's a horrific purgatory to be in a relationship in which you are really lonely. I've often joked, I just was talking about this another day with a client that I kind of wanted to start a hallmark line of cards for people who are still in relationship, but really feel nothing, but still have an obligatory card to have to give at a birthday or anniversary, because that's a really painful disconnect when no words match. And yet, oh, what do I do? It's this holiday or birthday and, you know, this loneliness. And I think there's a lot more of that than we really realize. So what do you think is the breakdown for people? Is it a fear of self-awareness, a fear of learning the tools, a fear of intimacy? What do you think really prevents people from getting out of that cycle that we see so many people actually in when they're they're not happy, they're not connected, they're not growing. Mm. Yeah, powerful question. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jerry. Um, I would say all of the above. Um, and of course, with some people more towards one f- fear than another one. But when it you know comes down to it, um there is hardwired into us an aversion to pain, whether that's emotional pain, physical pain. There's, you know, you you instinctively withdraw your hand from the hot stove. You know, you you instinctively shut down emotionally when something is activated within you that feels uncomfortable, that's difficult to accept that conflicts with your self-image. So we have uh, a natural, healthy aversion to to pain because pain, emotional or physical, is an indicator that something is awry. Something is not okay here right now. Something needs to be corrected. Something needs to change. And and so... uh, when we're living in an environment in which that feeling gets activated uh, in a prolonged way, continually, then we build into our own responsive system uh, a defense that is going to protect us when that pain that we're anticipating is just around the corner is going to come up. And whatever defense mechanism we've created for ourselves, whether it's to counterattack, whether it's to withdraw, whether it's to rationalize, whether it's to justify, whatever it is, that's going to kick in. And we don't decide to do that. We've already integrated that reactive pattern, that protective pattern. And so that's going to happen. It's that's just that's a given. and I don't care how much work you do, it's not likely that you're ever going to reach a point where you never get triggered. Uh, Damn just, it. Damn it, Charlie. Really? <laughs> you know, I hate that. I know. But, you know, the, yeah. Uh, I, I want to add. Yeah. 
Okay. I want to just add to what Charlie's saying, and I'm totally with him about the aversion to pain that's built in, it's hard, hardwired. But I also want to add that what I have found over the years of teaching and doing counseling is that people set their sights low. They don't reach high. They don't feel worthy and deserving of having the best, of having the best career, of having the best life, of having the best relationship with depth of connection, and they settle. So one of the things that I find when I work with my counseling clients and teach my classes is to stimulate and inspire those people, and I want to do it for your listening audience right now, to consider that they may be settling for much less than is available. And if they need to get a support group, a women's group, a men's group, a couple's group, go to workshops, find a therapist who will really see them and mirror back their wonderfulness and their signature strengths to them, do what you can. Because when you see what is available and possible to you personally, this pain that stops people, you're willing to pay some prices to get it. Yeah. um, Thank you for that, Linda. I just want to finish um, saying what I was saying because I don't want to leave people with a sense of despair because no, you know, we're we're kind of all stuck in this uh, hopeless situation. It is not hopeless at all. <laughs> um, uh, the positive side or the productive side of pain is that it awakens us to a need that requires us to fulfill it in some way. Without pain, we wouldn't take our hand away from the stove. You know, without pain, we would continue to subject ourselves to experiences that are not productive for us. Mm-hmm. So um, when when the inevitable happens and we do get triggered, um, there's two ways that we can respond to that. We can re- respond from our automaticity, our automatic reactive pattern uh and reaction is when those old feelings get triggered um as opposed to responsive which is a more responsible way uh to 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 respond to the other person and what that you know the difference there is that when i'm reacting i'm just <clears throat> i'm on automatic and the way I can tell them on automatic is because uh, we're back in the cycle again. You know, we're just, we're back in it. And, uh, and but I have some degree of awareness. I'm conscious of how this isn't working. You know, this is really not helping things. And to remember, I do have a choice. And it's always the same choice. I can either keep reacting, defending myself, you know, keep being, trying to control or or influence the other person, or I can just self-reflect, I can check in, what am I experiencing? What's going on right now? What are my concerns? What's my fear? And then, and this is the challenging part, I mean, it's challenging to self-reflect, but it's also really challenging to do this next step, which is I can reveal rather than conceal to my other partner, here's what's going on for me. I can get, I'll use the V word, vulnerable. 
And it's the failure to be willing to get vulnerable that I think is what keeps all of those repetitive cycles alive in people's relationships. Ultimately, what what the resistance is, what the fear is, it's the fear of getting vulnerable. Why? Well, look at the word. What the word literally means is to be exposed to danger or threat. In other words, you're taking off your defenses. You know, you're you're disarming yourself of your normal defenses that you use when you feel threatened, and you're exposing your tender underbelly to them. Mm-hmm. And that is the challenge mm-hmm. of relationships. And that's How the do you, moment many people, I was going to say, that's the moment many people want to run. Absolutely. Because it's so fucking scary. There's absolutely. a fear of rejection. There's this idea of that emotional backdraft from self-compassion work of if I start to dip my toe in this water of emotion, what if I drown? Where will it stop? That's a really exactly. easier said than done practice. Oh, oh, way easier said than done. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me, let me ask you this, Charlie and Linda. How do you persuade people? that vulnerability is a skill that they should practice in their relationship? Because to me, it's been a very hard sell. Yeah. Well, um, go ahead. I would say that my own personal sharing about how far I've come to become courageous enough and brave enough to show my underbelly, to be able to risk bringing how much fear and anxiety has run me a lot of my life. And it was a peak experience in my life. Early in our relationship, I wanted to really have an honest relationship with Charlie. And I told him, I wake up very, very frightened every morning, facing the challenges that I've taken on because I'm, you know, I'm not going to let them stop me, but they really I take on a lot and they scare me. And I just keep pitting myself against the challenges, but I have so much fear and I don't want to hide it. I don't want to have an image, you know, on with you. I want to tell you the truth. He says, bring it all to me. I'll eat it. And that was so meaningful to me because I had to pretend in, in my life with most of the people in my life that I was more courageous than I really felt. And so I, I felt that I could be loved as is with my neuroses and my kinky little sore spots and all of those things. And so when I tell stories of myself about how far I've come, I think that that inspires people to risk being vulnerable and to reveal rather than conceal and get out from behind the image that they give to most of the world. You don't want to do it with everybody, of course, but Mm. with chosen intimates, you want them to really know you. They, they know your glorious, magnificent signature strengths, and they know your weak suits too, because if they say, I love you, you want to be nourished deep in your soul, that they really know who you are. That you don't have this little voice say, but if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And you can't get to that place where you feel really loved abundantly unless you risk being vulnerable and showing all of who you are. It's a hell of an answer. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, 
The the other thing that I realized recently, I think you're absolutely right. Modeling is is a great way to go. Um, and, and we've we've been very vulnerable, especially over the past year, publicly on our podcast with our clients about our own realities of our hardships as a couple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right we get we get a lot of appreciative feedback saying thank you because hey, if we can't role model it, then we're not doing our job. <laughs> yeah, and and the other point to that to add is amidst this epidemic of loneliness, particularly among adult males is there was recent research that Joy and I have talked about before about friendships and how long it takes to go from an acquaintance to a friend and a friend to a best friend. Mm -hmm. And it takes about 40 to 50 hours to go from acquaintance to friend of time together. And to go from friend to best friend, it's about 150 to 200 hours, which if you tell that to an adult who's got a family and they're busy with work, that can be really demoralizing, right? They're like, I don't have that kind of time. And then the caveat to that is, they found a loophole in that. And the loophole is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And when you're vulnerable with people up front, it collapses that 200 hours to 45 minutes. Whoa, that's a big savings. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why it's so rare for that to happen, I think, John, is although there is a huge benefit from early vulnerability, there's just as huge a risk involved in being vulnerable before you have assessed the other person adequately as Mm -hmm. being a safe recipient to your vulnerability. So it does take some time for that trust to build. And somebody's got to go first. Somebody has got to be the first one to get real to get authentic, to get vulnerable. And in most relationships, we're both hoping that the other person will go first. Well, um, it's it's interesting. I've just been playing around with this idea, yeah. especially since my son died recently and sharing that with people who are acquaintances. Yeah. And some can deal with it magnificently and some get uncomfortable by it. That's right. I, I get both, right? Yeah. But I'm so appreciative for the people that deal well. It's sure. like an, an instant connection. And then often they'll 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 respond with a vulnerability of their own or something they've been struggling with. And even the ones who aren't up to playing at the level that we want to, to get real with us and to get vulnerable with us, there is value because each time we risk and somebody can't meet us, they change the subject or somehow make us bad and wrong for exposing. Do you know a bullshit detector gets more refined? Mm-hmm. And intuitively, we start to be able to sense. It's like we have little feelers out and we get to sense the tr- the people who are more trustworthy from the people who are not really up to it yet. I- I'm glad you said that, Linda, because I was going to say there are some people who I truly don't believe have a desire for being vulnerable, being in an authentic, deeper, related relationship. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, the book Adult Children by uh, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents and just emotionally immature people. Not everyone has that desire. And, you know, so I think one of my growth points has been navigating, recognizing who are the people who are available for that and who are the ones who aren't and then be able to navigate healthy boundaries as a result of 
wanting more from a relationship than someone has a desire or capacity to show up in. And that's not about me, right? Back to that personalization. Not everyone has the depth that the four of us are talking about wanting to create. And yet the four of us know how beautiful and rich it is when Mm -hmm. we get there. And I have to say, though, that my intuition has been wrong sometimes Mm -hmm. in who I can be vulnerable with and who I can't or who doesn't Mm -hmm. receive it well. And it's just been fascinating to me to play around with the concept and see who deals well despite my stereotypes, who doesn't. Mm -hmm. What you're saying, both of you, is reminding me of hearing Ram Dass speak. Mm. And he was talking about when he makes an overture to somebody and he feels rejected by them, his response after a lot of spiritual practices Oh, too bad! Too bad for them. I'm yeah. so wonderful. They're missing out on a good time with me. Well, it's an invitation to engage at a different level. Yeah, and you know those people that can do it, great. If you can't, I understand that too. Mm-hmm. But the only way to really find that out, I think, John, is to put it to the test. Uh huh. That is, you've got to be willing to take the risk more than once. Um, however, if your overtures, your invitations to more meaningful interaction continually meet with some form of rejection, um, then, you know, it, then you've got some evidence to make that decision on. And, and if that person responds, you know, in a more favorable way, you know, then you've got some other evidence. But you can't know your intuition is not going to tell you it's mm-hmm. going to be wrong sometimes. But the evidence from your putting out that <clears throat> your own vulnerability in that invitation, uh, which can be as simple as saying something like, wow, I, I'd really uh, I'd really like to get to know you better. Uh, a lot of us feel that way, but it feels a little risky to actually mm-hmm. I mean, what might that other person feel? How might they respond to it? So so it's an incredibly important assessment to make whether or not this is a player I've got here. Mm-hmm. But he was really wanting, motivated to engage with me the way I want to. And sometimes you can be incredibly pleasantly surprised by somebody who, you know, you put it out and they go, yeah, me too. And, and then they, you know, they respond uh, accordingly, and then you know, oh, there's some potential here. But you can't find that. You can't rely just on your intuition. Mm-hmm. You've got to put it to the test. When I invite people to risk pressing gently and respectfully that edge of their comfort zone to make a bigger area to play in, I feel like I have a leg to stand on because I've been so risky in the books that I've written, particularly the memoir. In all of our books, we have a lot of personal before and after stories as our teaching. But the memoir was one of the most difficult times in our life that we ever went through when we hung on the edge of maybe not going to be able to make it as an intact family. The kids were still small and Charlie was, you know, working so much and out of town and away. And uh, we wrote a highly detailed (laughs) description of the hell realms that we were living in and how we were dangling so close to the edge and 
how it is that we made it through that time so that it was a breakthrough rather than a breakup. And so we reveal a lot when we teach, we reveal a lot when we cancel, and we we reveal a lot when we write, but it's all for the purpose of inspiring other people to make their threshold bigger for how risky they're willing to get out there on the skinny branches. Yeah, I, I, I love that, Linda, so much. And again, it's that interplay of the self-inner work and the relational work, right? To be able to self-regulate when feeling anxious and overwhelmed or flooded or triggered so that you can stay available for that. Um, I have a, a question. We know from the research that from the Gottman's research, you know, approximately 67% of problems in relationships can't be solved. And I know I work with couples who almost every time we talk, it's the same version of the similar patterns that get repeated. Different details arise week to week, but we've got underlying patterns that seem to sometimes not be able to be solved or fixed. What are some of the ways that you guide couples in those areas where there seem to be stalemates or just a a roadblock of, of moving forward? What are some of your best tools for that? Okay, good. Okay. Um, well, one thing I try to remind um, the people that I'm working with is um, even couples with fantastic relationships have irreconcilable differences. So, I mean, the whole notion of <laughs> when you used to have to justify divorce um, and irreconcilable differences was one of the justifications for it. Um, But if every couple who had irreconcilable differences got divorced, nobody would stay married because everybody has them. The question isn't, how do we both, you know, whose whose perspective is going to dominate here, yours or mine? It's getting out of that whole binary system and looking beyond that to Okay, so what are our options here? You know, you don't want to have children. I want to have children. That's deal breaker. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some things that appear to be deal breakers may not be. But we've got to begin by looking at the possibility beyond a binary choice. You know, that seems like a deal breaker. Right. That seems like that's not workable. Can't have half a that, kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, so unless you're King Midas. Yeah. Right. right. No, not King Midas, Solomon. Solomon, thank you. Solomon. Um, yeah. Um, but um, so you <clears throat> if you begin with the assumption that one of us is gonna dominate here, one of us is gonna lose, and I'm not gonna be the loser, then you know, you're stuck in a paradigm that is fundamentally unworkable. So you've got to start by asking the question, okay, we both see it differently. This does not look good. Is there any other possibility here? Is there any way we can somehow begin to move towards some common ground, something that we can both live with? to be open to that as a possibility. And and I have worked with couples who begin with that polar opposite. And some, not all of them, of course, Mm -hmm. 
some of them have managed to stay together in ways that have worked. Um, and while it seems like, well, th this is not something that you can compromise on, you know, if, if, you know, you really feel the need to have a child and you really are opposed to it, um, you know, that, that sure seems like it's not workable. But I'm just using this as an example of how, if we look at it, not in terms of one of us has got to go over to the other one. Um, one of us has to give up something. The other one's going to dominate. Um, and instead, look at it as, okay, this is a real challenge. What do we have in common here? Well, what we have in common is we both really want this to work. You know, we're both really committed to it. And we both have strong feelings about, you know, and I'm using this as a very dramatic example, as this whole childhood, uh, child question. Um, if we start with that and look at, are there any, any steps that either one of us can take that can move me in the direction of the other person? So many of us are looking for the dramatic transformational moment that's the breakthrough. It's going to cause the breakthrough and everything is going to work out. But and as I know, you know, that relationships improve not because of huge breakthrough moments, but because of incremental changes, small steps in the direction of mutual respect and understanding. Um. So when you hold that as a perspective, it doesn't feel so overwhelmingly hopeless. Um, we may not have the breakthrough answer, but maybe we can look at certain steps that we can take or that we can ask our partner to consider taking that can move us towards some common ground. And I want to add to what Charlie's saying. I I feel that what he's saying is profound and useful, and I feel compelled to add that there really are some legitimate deal breakers, mm -hmm. and that not every committed partnership or every marriage deserves to be saved. Yep. And it's important to be honest with ourselves and not live in hope or not uh, be under the illusion and the fantasy that we can change them to fit you know, our Prince Charming or Princess Charming ideal. And if one person is hell-bent on having other ch children and the other person doesn't want them, they may try to find common ground and do it respectfully. Nobody's bad and wrong here, but they may not be properly matched. Another one that we find sometimes is there's one partner who wants polyamory. And the other person only wants a, a closed container for their sexual relationship. And, you know, they, they might try. One person may, you know, try to do monogamy and feels too restrained by that. Or the other person may feel that they want to share and they try it and it just rubs them raw and they can't do it. And if it's true that you're a mismatched pair, the only kind and loving thing to do is to free each other to go on to find someone who really will be aligned with their values. Yeah. So sometimes people have the mistaken idea about us because we've been doing couples work so long and we're a stand for do your work. But we mean 
do your work and one or two things will happen. Either that breakthrough will happen or it won't. But you will know because you will have given it everything you have. And you may find that you're not good together. And that should be a real possibility that you can face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there, thank you for the so, beauty of that answer. I, sorry, Jory. Yeah, I um, just wanted to just add one more quick yeah. thing to that. And then we can um, wrap up soon. And I want to talk about the book. I think what's really beautiful about what you just said, Linda, and thank you both for the depth of that is love isn't enough. And this is one of the things that John and I talk about and teach a lot about of love isn't enough. And if we're just blind to believe, well, I love you, it's going to work. That may not be the most loving thing you can do for your partner. That's right. And it's deep wisdom to recognize when is work not working for, you know, now we're now not living in in authenticity or respect, or, you know, we're just, um, you know, bringing out the worst in one another. And I believe sometimes relationships have soul contracts and not everyone's supposed to end up forever together. And that doesn't mean it wasn't a successful relationship for what you learned or what you created. So I just want to name that piece because I think for anyone who's listening, who perhaps may be in that purgatory place of do I stay or do I go, there's no wrong answer. And not everyone is, it's meant to always work out. And that doesn't mean it was a failure. I hate when people say, oh, that marriage failed. No, it didn't. You were, you, you gave yourself the opportunity for a partnership and not it not working out doesn't mean it failed. It meant it wasn't meant to last in this capacity. So I just wanted to give that last little caveat there for people who are listening and what do I do? It's like, well, give yourself some grace and compassion. And if you do the work on yourself, it'll benefit the next relationship too. Definitely. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up one of the 101 tools in the book because this one's a personal favorite of mine. And I think it was instrumental for Jory and I in healing after our breakup. But would you guys talk a little bit about non-reactive or non-defensive listening? <clears throat> Can you actually, before you answer that, just talk a little bit about the book and end up arguing, like you said, John, there was one of your tips, but just the context of the book of having 101 different lessons. Just how did you get to that? Because I want to get to that answer, but just give the context of the book. Hmm. Okay, so what you're looking at here is a couple of recovered hotheads. <laughs> back in the day, uh, at first, I was cowardly and angerphobic. And God bless Charlie. He told me the truth. I can't be with anybody that's not honest. If you're going to try to candy coat the cesspool, my words, not his. <laughs> can't be with you. So I had to get myself together to grow some courage pretty fast to be more direct and honest and tell him the truth when I was unhappy because things were slipping out by the side. He used to call those the zingers that would slip out. So we had a lot to learn. I already said we didn't come into this relationship in our very early 20s. We were still mostly kids you know, with good models. But we we learned how to make our statements and talk about our own experience and take responsibility for our own experience and not blame and shame the other person. And so we, um, we had a, a particular area of expertise that's helpful with couples because so many couples are drawn to their compliments. And then the very same things that magnetize them to each other, drive them nuts and sometimes drive them apart. 
And so we had learned so many different things that we figured uh, we've we've helped a lot of students and clients. Let's write it down for the people who don't go to counseling or workshops. And we distilled it down to little tiny chapters and people can just pick by their area of interest. And non-reactivity is one of the ones that is of high interest to most people who read the book, because we all have our places where we get, ah, you know, I don't, I don't want them grabbing power. I don't want to be exploited. I don't want to be neglected. I don't want to be abandoned. We all have those sore places. But if we can hang on to ourselves and see what it is that's so scary and what hurts, then the way in which we communicate is a much more vulnerable way than shaming and blaming and making them bad and wrong. And that's the way out of the reactive pattern that we see, what is it in me that's so tender here? And we were just talking about the irreconcilable differences. We see it a lot in the couples where one is a saver and one of them is a spender, and they haven't really looked inside to see the own own part of themselves that they put in the shadow and that they're full of judgment about the spender or the saver because they have to own that part of themselves. We see it a lot with the couples who they're bashing heads about how to raise the kids. And one of them strict wants limits and consequences and the other one's laissez faire and says life will give them consequences. And the, and the person who wants to have more form and structure hasn't really owned that part that wants freedom themselves. Maybe they didn't have freedom and they they are afraid to allow the children to fall down, get up. So it can show up in a lot of different ways. But when we notice our reactivity, that is just gold mine of information to learn about ourselves and to heal those places that are so tender and sore and to report out about them in a very vulnerable way, because there's always fear and hurt underneath, and sometimes sadness and grief. Mm -hmm. And those tender feelings are the way to go down deeper underneath the irritability, the anger, the reactivity, and the resentment. It's so much easier said than done. And when John and I, John and I have been practicing non-reactivity, non-defensive listening, it allows conversations to get to that that gold much quicker and it gets to repair much quicker and it gets to understanding much quicker. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but it's a muscle to build. And I, I think we found that it allows us to let go of some of those old emotions we've been holding on towards the other. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, you know, there's a philosopher that many years ago said, you know, that we can just be rid of our baggage and our story if we can just sit down and share our story without interruption with one person. And so to have, like, Jory at one point was angry at me and yelling at me, and because I had put in a lot of practice, I just listened and I said, yeah, I can see where that's really making you angry. I can see where you're pissed off. And when she was all done, I said, thank you for sharing your anger with me. I didn't defend myself. Yes. I think... I think that was quite cathartic, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was hugely cathartic. And we, ironically, John's been really encouraging me to get in touch with my anger. That was never an emotion I even knew what to do or feel with or how to express it. And he has 
very graciously encouraged it while simultaneously not reacting to it. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been reactivity. We're still human, but our intention is to allow the space to communicate about it because if it's anger, if it's sadness, if it's depression, if it's anxiety, whatever it is, it's real emotion. And again, we over-personalize so much of it. And as a result of feeling safe, feeling my anger, and he's allowed me to feel safe expressing my anger, I can let it go. Yeah. I hear your gratitude for John, and I have the same gratitude for Charlie. Yeah. I was brought up in, in the South to be ladylike and genteel, do you know, and not to let that anger show. And I will be grateful all of my days. It's one of the... Yeah reasons I'm so crazy and, I'm wild about him but that he accepted me you know with that that part of myself that had been rejected for a very long time and Linda I love you much more unladylike and non-genteel <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're yeah. so much more real I love I, to be gotten well, and, and I gotta say for the listeners I, I have to say for the listeners I don't mean to present myself as a saint that's me at my very best and I I <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm not there all the time, but that's you the goal. That. That's what I'm striving <laughs> to get to. I, I I love the format of this book because I, I love the short little chapters, the headliners to catch your attention. And one of the ones I just want to quickly touch on because we see this a lot and it tends to be gender uh, dynamics as well. But the, the heading is, if you don't want her to be a nag, treat her like a thoroughbred. And it really makes me think of the Terry Real book, How Can I Get Through to You, which we, John and I often talk about. And we think the thesis to that book is, you know, women are unhappy with their men because they want their men to be more, more present, more aware, more communicative, more affectionate, more vulnerable. And men aren't unhappy. They're unhappy when their women are unhappy with them, right? So there tends to be this perception of, being a nag or wanting to connect or to talk more like John used to get frustrated if after a repair a couple of days later or a week later, I'm like, Hey, can we talk about that again? And he was like, shit, really? I didn't really talk about that. Like we have to go there again. And yeah. as I, as I say, you know, if one person's disconnected, then we're both disconnected. If one is unsettled, we are unsettled. So it's not me nagging him. It's me seeking greater connection. So what is that? You guys speak, speak a little bit to that of, you know, if you don't want her to be a nag, be a nag, you're like a thoroughbred. I, just, I love the phrasing on that. Mm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the impulse whenever we, we feel stressed or threatened in some way is to try to control the other person, um, either by accommodating them or by um, intellectualizing something or, you know, just in some way. When that gets when that gets triggered, that that's what we want to do, and of course the problem with doing that, with operating from that program, our previously internalized program of defensiveness, the the, the problem with doing that <clears throat> is that it does not address the complaint that the other person is registering. Basically, what she or he is saying is something is not working here, and. I need for us to address it because I'm feeling incomplete. Um, so uh, we use that word a lot. Are you complete with this? Meaning that have you come to terms with this in a way that it's not uh, 
it's not a problem for you anymore. That it's it's no longer something that keeps coming up in your mind all the time. It's it's not a withhold. Um, so are, are you kind of flatlined in terms of this is no longer a major issue for you? And when we get defensive, we're essentially pushing back on the other person saying, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And they're saying, but I'm incomplete. They're not using those words, but that's what their message is. I'm incomplete. And if we don't you know, address this again, I don't care if we've already addressed it 20 times. Um, there's still more that I need. To, and sometimes we do need to come back and return to the same subject because we get into deeper and deeper layers of it. Um, so sometimes, you know, we do have to do it more, many more times than our mind thinks that we should have to, or that the other person's mind thinks that we should have to. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we refuse to engage, then what we're doing is we're allowing um, a dysfunctional condition to be present in our relationship without attending to it, without paying attention to it, without dealing with it. So what's going to happen? Well, nothing good is going to happen from that. It's going to just draw more at negativity. It's going to keep coming up. And whether we talk about it or just stuff our feelings down, it's going to show up in our relationship. It's going to show up in the level of trust and respect that we have for each other. So um, when people see this, when they see the link, the connection between their defensiveness and some of the difficulties that they're experiencing in the relationship, that it's not because of the other person, it's partly the other person, but they can't do, we can't do anything to, about them. All we can do something about is ourselves. And when we see, well, uh, I can connect the dots here. My defensiveness is always leading to the same thing. And her defensiveness is leading to the same thing. So, there's no possibility of getting an, one of the one of the titles in one of our chapters in the book that people are often asking about uh, is don't use these three words. I don't know if you remember that one, <laughs> but those three words are you're being defensive. And when people use those words, they are giving the other person a great reason to be defensive. Because they're basically accusing them of something that they see as the problem. You're the problem. And if you don't stop being so damn defensive, then we're not going to get any place. Well, they, it may be true that they're being defensive. But is there any way that they may have reason to feel defensive with you right now? Might you be reacting to them in ways that cause them to feel threatened? which inevitably is going to activate their defensiveness. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to um, just say that Gottman's research says that 80 to 85% of the issues of the relationship are broached by the women. It's the wise 21st century man who does the heavy lifting in the relationship and brings the issues up, or at least welcomes them when she brings them up. And back in the day when we were having a lot of disconnect and trouble um, and thought a lot, when we were at our worst, 
I was trying to bring the issues up to get complete because we were so disconnected. And Charlie, when we were at our very worst, fortunately, this decades ago, would call me bottomless pit. You are never satisfied. And what I love hearing him say now, what I love about you is that you're never satisfied. (laughs) That he knows that he wouldn't have come as far as he's come in his life as an individual. And we wouldn't have come as far as we've come as a couple and in our career flourishing without the willingness to bring up the toughest issues. I, yeah, I and, and thank you for that. bringing that up. I sorry, Jory. Let me, let me I, just put this yeah. point in because one of my big ahas in this relationship with Jory was, and when when the when she would bring up a disagreement again a few days later, and I thought we had resolved it, I would be like, "Oh man, oh. seriously!" <laughs> and so that was my initial reaction. And then over time, I realized how wise it was to do this, yeah. and we would revisit some of these arguments or disagreements five, six, seven, eight times. And I realized that the more we did this, the further I could get away from it, the better perspective I got on it, the more objective I could be, the more curious I could be, the further back in my past I could go with curiosity to look at what is it that's bringing this trigger up for me? And then we would get to that point that you mentioned, Charlie, of completion. And we could tuck it away and put it to bed. Yeah, and, I, and I think it, it brings this image of an upward spiral, right? Where you're continually going over the same issues, but every time you do, you're getting better and better. As opposed to a dealing with it. Spiral going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. 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 And there's subtle layers under the layers under the layers. And yeah. we really drill down there. It's it's gorgeous material to contact. And it can feel counterintuitive to revisit something when it seemingly is calm and you don't want to rock the boat or ruffle the feathers. So it is courageous to bring it back up if you're not complete. That's right. And people often are afraid, well, I don't want to bring it up again because we're things are going good right now. Yeah. And I often, when I do couples work, I'll start off each session and say, you know, how is your week? And if they say, oh, we're doing good. I always ask, are you doing good because there were no triggers or are you doing good because you responded differently to the triggers that arose? Right. Because if it's just good because there was no triggers, great. Like life's easy when it's easy, but like, let's get to how are we responding differently to your point earlier, Charlie, about responding versus reacting. And so, John, I, I really appreciate that you've recognized that my ongoing incompleteness ended up being a value for us. So thank you. But I, part of it is having the right language. And I love that language of I'm not complete because Mm -hmm. it's owning your experience. It's not accusing the other person of not doing their work. It's saying to me, I'd like to feel more connected right now. Are you available to talk about that? Exactly. And for me, I I love the language of I'm available or not available. Because again, that's just owning your own experience in the moment of what your boundary might be. And that might be, you know what, I'm not available for that right now, but I will be available for that after I've had some more time or I need a better night's sleep or what it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could also imagine that there might be in addition to those three words you mentioned, you're being <laughs> defensive. There's probably another set of two words that probably should never be spoken, which is calm down. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. The last thing anyone's ever going to do, including a tantruming child right, or right. an upset, you know, partner is ever going to calm down when you say calm down. 
Boy, yeah, that does not make me feel calm. <laughs> no, Charlie and Linda, I, I so respect you guys so much. You know, as I'm sitting watching you guys, you're sitting on the couch that John and I sat on when we were in your home doing our work. And it feels so familial to be around you and places uh, both personally and professionally that we have so much alignment. And we are just so grateful to be in uh, connection with you guys. It's been a very deep, meaningful experience for us, both personally and professionally. And I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing and your role modeling the vulnerability. And it gives John and I you know, great excitement to see models of our career as we continue to do more of our couple's work as being in relationship with one another. Because I think it adds a whole extra amazing, rich value to work with clients as couples in a couple. So it's it's a beautiful role model for us. So I'm going to speak for John and I and just say thank you for being our role models. You're very welcome. Uh, I committed myself way, 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 way back in the early 20s to live in a life of service. And it's been uh, tremendously gratifying to live a life of service and particularly helping couples to be closer with each other and doing my bit to create more intact families. And it's kind of fun when we interface with other people like you two who have a similar mission. So it's it's fun to have a mutual admiration society like we got. Oh. Well, and I got to say, it, it cracks me up. The similarities between the four of us in our dissimilarities. In other <laughs> yeah. words, I'm quite similar to Charlie you're Linda, you're quite similar to Jory. And it the similarities always kind of leave me awestruck <laughs> and amuse me. Can you share about your upcoming workshops you have? Yes, we're teaching our most popular workshop, which is Secrets of Great Relationships at Esalen Institute in Big Sur. Esalen's just a magnificent experience in itself for people who haven't been there because it's on the banks of the Pacific with these awe-inspiring views and the food's really good. But we pack a lot of value in a weekend. It's a Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning. And we deal quite a bit with issues about differences and how to harness the power of the differences and learn from the differences and respect the differences. And also to gently push aside the barriers to deep intimacy, especially uh, looking through the eyes of appreciation and gratitude at our partner. And some of the hardest things that we experience with them have embedded in them the biggest life lessons that they're in our life to teach us if we can open to it. So um, it's wonderful to spend a weekend at Esalen. It's one of those gifts to yourself that keeps on giving. And I always tell people, if you decide you want to do a workshop at Esalen, ours or anybody's, sign up early because they have limited housing available. So there would be room perhaps in the workshop, then you wouldn't be able to be housed on campus. I, I, Esalen's my most favorite place. So that, you know, anyone who can experience you guys in Esalen, what, what a gift. And we'll have those link uh, in our show notes as well. And also a link to your book and end to arguing anything else you want to wrap up with and say, as we kind of complete this beautiful we connection follow too on the East coast. I don't know how far your range is, but we're coming to Kropalu the weekend before Valentine's day. People can get us in the Berkshires and Massachusetts too. Mm -hmm. Got some closing remarks. 
couple. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to thank you guys um, for inviting us on to your shows. Um, it's really been a pleasure. And uh, like Linda, I, I really love being able to have these conversations with other people who share our commitment to promoting healthy relationships. Um, it's just such a pleasure. And I know I know that you know that. I know that you know the pleasure that comes from passing your what you've learned on to other people who yeah. you know are going to pass it on to others. I mean, we are all touching many more people than we even realize. And they're touching other people, too, by what they're learning. So this is transformational work. And um, I, I really... I honor your commitment. I honor our own commitment to mm-hmm. it also. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting us on. And thanks for the work that you're doing. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing on the journey. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much. And I know that you guys also do trips that we like the one that we went on with uh, you guys to Africa And so if you guys who are listening ever have an opportunity to join Charlie and Linda on one of their big trips, that's a gift as well. And I'm just, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. And um, all the links will be in the show notes, John, anything you want to end with? Yeah. I just wanted to say in closing, I'm grateful for your wisdom and I'm really grateful for your friendship. Mm -hmm. So thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. It really makes a big difference. All right, And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast and Journey Forward with Jory Rose. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. (laughs) Until next time. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 